So as you guys can see from the title, there's a little bit of foreshadowing in the title about some of the things that we might be talking about. And uh, work is in quotations because there's a little subjectivity to that. And we're going to cover um, what, why that work is in quotations as we go. Uh, so as I get started, just want to mention that I don't have anything to disclose, no financial interest, no uh, affiliations or anything like that. I am just here as a physical therapist trying to branch out and get into an interdisciplinary conference and uh, get to meet a bunch of different people from around the nation, around the world, different disciplines, and uh, interact as much as I can. So our objectives today will be reviewing the history and the theory of the trigger point hypothesis. We will discuss literature on reliability and validity of trigger point palpation and diagnosis, that sort of thing. We're going to look at the research on the efficacy of both dry needling and acupuncture, or both of them together, as we'll talk about in a little bit. And uh, we're also going to look at some different alternative explanations for how context and, and uh, patient interaction and therapeutic alliance and all sorts of different things might play into uh, how we could perceive an intervention to have worked with one of our patients. So uh, a little bit of background on myself, just so... Uh, you guys know that I'm not just um, up here talking uh, about something that I've only read about. Um, I have been pretty extensively trained in dry needling. I've taken about six different courses from three different dry needling institutions so to get different perspectives. Two of the companies have clung very closely to the trigger point hypothesis. One of the companies doesn't believe trigger points exist. One of the companies actually uses acupoints for reference to needle-specific musculoskeletal structures. So they kind of combine the two different philosophies of acupuncture and trigger point dry needling. Uh, I have not directly studied acupuncture. I've only talked to acupuncturists in dry needling courses. Um, but I have, admittedly, this is a confession session for me. If, anybody out there is familiar with me, I have needled thousands of patients, either in training or in the clinic, which uh, might come as a surprise to you as I go through this presentation and we talk about the literature. So just before we move on, show of hands, how many physical therapists in here? A few. How many physicians? A few. Psychologists? Nurse practitioners? PAs? Anybody else that I did not mention? Occupational therapist. Awesome. So that's good. I, I really like that we have a wide diversity of people here. So everybody's got a little bit different perspective, and some of you may have some familiarity with dry needling, and some of you may not. Who's pretty familiar with dry needling, has either done it themselves, been dry needled, or referred a patient for dry needling? Okay, so a few people. Um, who is just familiar with what it is? A few more people. All right, cool. So I'm going to go ahead and admit that there's too many slides. I'm a talker. I ramble. I get on tangents. I walk back and forth. So uh, hopefully that doesn't distract you guys too much. But I want this to be fun. I want you guys to laugh a little bit. Uh, you know, my headache is gone, but I have pins and needles in my arse. 
So uh, if you guys have any big burning questions, go ahead and ask them during the presentation. I don't mind getting sidetracked at all. In fact, I love it, uh, probably a little bit too much. But my watch battery went out yesterday. So when we get to 10 minutes left in the presentation, I want everybody to stand up and yell triggered at me. All right? So are dry needling and acupuncture the same thing? And that would depend on who you ask. If you ask somebody that is an acupuncturist, they would say no, most of the time. If you ask somebody who is a physical therapist who is highly trained in dry needling, they would also most likely say no. But then what's the return on investment of finding out what you don't know, right? I don't know, but let's talk about it. So dry needling and acupuncture use the same needle, all right? So traditionally, physical therapists have used acupuncture needles while they were practicing dry needling until recently there has been some companies that are actually taking acupuncture needles and rebranding them as dry needles so acupuncturists can't say well you're using acupuncture needles to practice this art that is very similar to acupuncture so it's kind of more of a, uh, a face value type thing it's kind of more of a um, protection against litigation is the reason that that's happened so I also don't want to automatically lump all acupuncture together because that's a common misconception as well. We have traditional Chinese acupuncture, we have auricular acupuncture, you have what's called medical acupuncture and battlefield acupuncture and all this other stuff that's coming out, right, or that, that's been around. But the most well-known is traditional Chinese medicine acupuncture, which functions off of the basis of the meridians in the body and the, the predetermined points and the flow of yin and yang energy and uh, qi throughout the body, right? So dry needling, on the other hand, usually focus, focuses on the idea of trigger points. So most of the time, most continuing <coughs> education companies that teach on dry needling teach the trigger point hypothesis, except for one that doesn't believe that they exist and another one that's developed in uh, a different format of points that they use that are very similar to acupoints, okay? Not disclosing any names, but there's just some different philosophies so you guys are aware. Um, but if we look at the Latin breakdown of the word acupuncture, that in and of itself just means needle penetration through the skin. So for the purposes of this presentation, we're gonna look at acupuncture and dry needling as relatively the same thing because we're going to be looking at literature in which a needle, a thin monofilament needle that does not inject any sort of substance is placed into soft tissues in the body to either release a trigger point or deactivate a trigger point or change energy flow or, or, or whatever we want to say about it, but it's for the treatment of musculoskeletal issues, right? So we're gonna, we're gonna move forward looking at the literature homogeneously. When you Google trigger points, this is what comes up. Really nice drawings, really nice anatomical representations that have predetermined points all over the body where trigger points usually reside or exist, right? You will not actually see a picture of any dissection or diagnostic imaging that displays a trigger point because to date, there has not been one visualized except for one study that uses ultrasound to look at hypoechoic spots in connective tissue. 
but those hypoechoic spots are also found in non-painful areas as well. So the bearing of what that really means for the diagnosis and existence of trigger points is still completely up in the air, but I did want to disclose that there is one study that there has, there's elastography is what they used to look at um, hypoechoic spots. So here's the great divide. There's a lot of people that very, very strongly believe in the existence of trigger points, and then there's a lot of people that very adamantly refute the idea that there is such a phenomenon as the classically uh, described trigger point. So do they exist? That's a good question. I am going to go ahead and say I don't have the answer. No one has the answer. But that's what science is about, right? It's becoming less wrong as we move forward. The more we know, we either accept or reject the null hypothesis, and we move towards becoming less wrong. So I'm going to present a lot of evidence, and I'm going to let you guys make your own decision, okay? So originally, Travell and Simons, they described a trigger point as a hyper-irritable spot in skeletal muscle that is associated with hypersensitive palpable nodule in a top band. The spot is tender when pressed and can give rise to characteristic preferred pain, motor dysfunction, and autonomic phenomenon. Again, a nice drawing, a nice anatomic representation of sarcomeres in series and little tiny microscopic muscle spasms. However, if we look at systematic reviews and randomized control trials, high-quality evidence, um, I tried to stick to high-quality evidence in this presentation because if you just go to good old PubMed and type in acupuncture, you get about 17,000 hits, and if you type in dry needling, you get over 1,000. I'm not going to read 18,000 papers. What I'm going to read is the 10, 15, or 20 highest quality papers that actually give a good representation of what the literature says as a whole. Right? Um, you guys can read 18,000 if you want to and tell me about it. Um, so if we look at Tuff et al. in 2007, an extensive review identified at least 19 different sets of diagnostic criteria used for myofascial pain syndrome slash trigger point syndrome and concluded there was lack of consistency and consistence on a case definition. definition. So until reliable diagnostic criteria has been established, there's need for greater transparency with research studies that either describe or treat trigger points, right? Because at this point in 2007, we don't have any sort of reliable diagnostic criteria because there's a multitude of diagnostic criteria. And if we can't agree on what that diagnostic criteria is, it's going to be difficult to make a consistent diagnosis across multiple practitioners. And um, there should just be transparency in any research that looks at or treats myofascial pain syndrome under the basis or assumption of trigger points. Then, if we fast forward 10 years and look at this year, uh, Cesar Ferdinand's De Las Peñas and Jan Dammerholt, uh, two very well-known names in the trigger point literature, are associated with a, they're both associated with a very large um, continuing education company, probably the premier one in the world for teaching trigger point dry needling, conducted a Delphi study to look at what experts around the world thought that trigger points were. What they came away with is a cluster of three diagnostic criteria was proposed as essential for trigger point diagnosis. A taut band, a hypersensitive spot, and referred pain. You guys see my first bullet point. 
I guess it doesn't matter to them that we can't reliably find them when the examiner is blinded, which we're going to talk about in just a little while. Interestingly, trigger point diagnosis only required two of these three. So either a taut band and a hypersensitive spot, a hypersensitive spot and referred pain, a taut band and referred pain, so on and so forth. So what's interesting about that is that local tenderness was not considered necessary for the diagnosis of a trigger point. You could just have somebody finds a taut band and pain appears somewhere else or is experienced somewhere else remote to that. So you don't, they didn't think that it was on the expert consensus necessary to have local pain, right? 80% of the experts agreed that referred pain elicited by a trigger point can include different sensory sensations, right? Not just pain. So pain spreading to a distant area, dull ache, deep pain, tingling and burning. So basically what I gather from this is if you poke on something and it causes some sort of sensation, it could possibly be diagnosed as a trigger point based on the expert consensus. Seems a little bit too broad to me, but again, I want everybody to make their own conclusions. So if we look a little bit deeper in this study, 84% consistently answered that main clinical differences between active and latent trigger points are the reproduction of any of the symptoms experienced by the patient. So uh, latent trigger points are something that they advocate for treating quite often. However, if they don't create any symptoms and we can't reliably palpate them, how can we find a latent trigger point? Just a question that I had. Again, expert consensus was there is no specific location of pain referral area and trigger point location should be expected, right? So you guys might have seen that really big, huge, expensive trigger point manual that floats around, right? That has all of the referral patterns for every muscle in the entire body. Even though the guys that wrote it and contributed to it and teach about it say, nah, there's no standardized referral pattern. So I want my $350 back. All right, so we're going to say strike one. How can you effectively treat something you can't consistently define or agree on? All right, so let's move forward from there. Let's look at trigger point palpation. Love this study from 1992 with uh, Fred Wolf. They actually did a study to look at the blinded ability of assessors to have inter-rated reliability when diagnosing trigger points. And one of, the, one of the participants in the study was actually Dr. Simons of the Travell and Simons duo, who are the originators of a lot of the, the literature that we have and the theories that we have on trigger points. And the conclusions were, when blinded, as to diagnosis, those who claimed expertise in the field were unable to detect, detect trigger points in the majority of subjects with myofascial pain syndrome. If you look a little bit deeper in the study, the average inter-rater reliability, the, the standard error of measurement in the upper trap, not a very big muscle, was three and a half to six and a half centimeters between experts. So one guy says it's here, the next guy says it's six and a half centimeters over. So there's a pretty wide degree of difference, especially if we're talking about treating with a needle a dysfunction at a motor end plate that is essentially a micrometer in, in size, right? So the, that's a pretty wide error range. So then we move forward to 1997. 
going to go ahead and just give the quick overview on a lot of these studies because, like I said, I have a ton of information on these slides. I wanted you guys to have the references, and I wanted you guys to be able to look it up and read them yourself to come away with your own conclusions. There was a lack of concordance not only in the location sites of trigger points, but also in the number of trigger points identified. This outcome challenges claims that trigger points can be reliably identified using palpation. She, 2000. Among non-expert physicians, physiatrists or chiropractic, chiropractors, trigger point palpation is not reliable for detecting a taut band or a local twitch response and only marginally reliable for referred pain. Uh, so again, if you're just going looking for a taut band, if you're looking for a localized twitch response or a jump sign, whatever you want to classify it as, we're pretty terrible at doing, having any reliability doing that. Lucas, 2009. No study to date has reported the reliability of trigger point diagnosis according to the currently proposed criteria. Again, a systematic review of the literature in the Clinical Journal of Pain says that we don't have good reliability with manual palpation of trigger points. Then we move on. I don't know if anybody in here is familiar with Dr. Quintner or Dr. Cohen. Yeah? They, uh, they might be a little bit biased on this subject, but I want to... <laughs> I mean, I do want to give them credit where credit is due. They're incredibly intelligent physicians from Australia, and they have pretty much spent their life looking at this particular topic and writing extensively about it. Uh, their conclusions on their take on all the literature says that the construct of myofascial pain syndrome caused by trigger points remains conjecture. All working hypotheses derived from conjecture have been refuted, and therefore the theory can be discarded. So they're even calling into question the traditional diagnostic criteria for myofascial pain syndrome because it's predicated upon the existence of trigger points. And the existence of trigger points is predicated upon our ability to reliably palpate them and to have a diagnostic criteria that's consistent and valid, right? So they propose that there's sufficient research to say that trigger points can be discarded. Rathbone, 2017, Clinical Journal of Pain, Systematic review, meta-analysis, use of manual palpation for identification of myofascial trigger points is unreliable, and future investigations should focus on integration with more reliable techniques. So this is just last year, right? So even as little as a year ago, systematic review of the evidence shows no reliability, no consistency in our ability to palpate these trigger points. So Houston, we've got a problem, right? Has anybody ever heard this, the, the statement that a test or an examination cannot be valid unless it's first reliable, right? So if our ability to find these guys is highly unreliable, any tests or interventions that we use to treat them might not be valid, right? Strike two, how can you manually treat something you can't reliably find? It's a big problem if you're going in to manually treat something that you can't define or consistently find, or if I find it, the next guy's not going to be able to find it, or the next girl's not going to be able to find it. But people have sore spots, right? <laughs> you have tenderness to palpation in muscles around your body, and sometimes they feel better when somebody treats them with some sort of release technique or some sort of dry needling technique or some sort of injection or whatever it may be. There's no denying that there are sore spots, and sometimes they seem to respond to treatment sometimes. 
So what are these soft tissue sore spots of unknown origin? Hat tip to a physio in the UK named Adam Meekins, who coined this term, soft tissue sore spots of unknown origin. People have sore spots. It hurts when you poke them. These spots flare up when people are stressed. They often flare up when you're overworked. Sometimes these spots refer pain to other places, or when you poke them, you feel discomfort in other places. Sometimes they feel better after you rub them. Sometimes they feel better if you poke a needle in them. So what are they, right? So I'm going to propose a couple of alternative hypotheses. And again, these may or may not be correct, but I believe that they have more biological plausibility than the traditionally defined trigger point. So theory number one, and I'm going to go ahead and let you guys know that there's a little bit of a typo on the slides coming up, and I'll just point that up when, uh, when we come up to it, okay? So theory number one is that there is peripheral neural uh, inflammation in the nervi nervorum. So are you guys familiar with what the nervi nervorum is? So it's the counterpart to the vasovasorum, which is the innervation of the actual nerve itself. So coursing on the outside of the neural lemma of a peripheral nerve, you have its own independent neural and vascular supplier or, or maintenance system, and it's called the nervi nervorum and the vasovasorum. Okay? So Bove in, in, in 1997 proposed that the nervi nervorum may be a missing link for neuropathic pain. And if you guys came to the talk yesterday morning about the knee bonus connected to the dot, 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 where we were talking about peripheral and central contributors to knee osteoarthritis, we talked about how people with persistent and long-term pain or chronic pain <laughs> tend to score high on neuropathic pain scales. So maybe when this neuroimmune cascade happens and people go into chronic pain or we have these persistently painful areas or spots, it's possible that there could be some sort of neuroimmune alteration in the way that our system functions that could theoretically maybe cause the nervi nervorum to be a little bit more sensitive or there could possibly be some sort of peripheral nerve inflammation that lowers the activation threshold of the nociceptor to send danger messages to the brain. So this is theory number one. So there's your uh, neuroanatomy from old school days back in, back in med school. So this has again been proposed and uh, has a little bit more weight to it in recent literature, 2016. Uh, believed that the nervi nervorum contributes to some of these dermomodulatory pain conditions that we see or maybe has somewhat of a role in things like fibromyalgia or myofascial pain syndrome, right? Because we're seeing some neurogenic inflammatory markers in those conditions. So this theory has a little bit of weight to it, but again, it's early. There's a lot more research that needs to be done about it. We don't know for sure. We're only trying to be less wrong. Theory number two is secondary hyperalgesia, right? Where you have a decreased pain pressure threshold or decreased um, ability to tolerate some other sort of stimuli at a remote area from where the original injury occurred. So we already saw in that talk yesterday morning, the knee bonus connected to the dot, 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 that people have trouble managing temporal summation or repeated exposure to distal 
stimuli if they have persistent pain. And this is in mechanical stimuli and thermal stimuli at remote sites in the body. So we have a decreased ability to either gate out that ascending information through inner neurons in the spinal cord or through descending modulatory pathways in the periapoductal gray matter and the rostroventral medial medullus and so on and so forth, right? So we don't have these brain areas working quite as good if you have some sort of consistently painful condition. So, again, Quinter and Cohen, they proposed the idea that maybe these sore spots are spots of secondary hyperalgesia. Maybe they're a manifestation of pain or decreased pain pressure threshold or sensitivity that is a symptom of something else rather than an entity all on its own. So here is uh, where I had that typo. This slide was supposed to be one slide back and it was supposed to say um, peripheral inflammation of the nervi nervorum. So just flip those in your mind, okay, when you go back through the slides. So then, when I was preparing for this talk, I found some really cool literature from all the way back in 1938. I had to go dig up photocopies of the original PDF published by Dr. Kellegren in 1938 that showed consistently that we have not only referred pain, but referred hyperalgesia or decreased pain pressure thresholds at distal areas when we inject an irritating substance into some sort of anatomical location on our body, right? So if you inject something into the interspinous ligament that's irritating, a hypertonic saline solution, or you inject something into the disc, guess what? Remote areas hurt, and remote areas actually develop a decreased pain pressure threshold. So we're really familiar with referred pain, but completely gloss over referred hyperalgesia or referred allodynia, right? Um, but it's very consistently demonstrated. So where do we go now? Based on what I've just presented you guys with, it appears that trigger points, at least in the traditionally understored rhetoric, may not exist as we have been taught to believe. Yet, we have quite a lot of treatments, including dry needling or acupuncture, which in traditional Chinese acupuncture, the, the insertion of a needle into um, a local tender spot is called an ashi point. So like when you poke it, you go ashi. <laughs> so we don't seem to have a consistent definition. It appears as though we can't palpate trigger points with any reliability. Yet we do have soft spots that hurt, or soft tissue spots that hurt, so we can definitely jab needles in them and, and, and cause a positive outcome, right? Well, let's, let's see, maybe. Let's look at the clinical effectiveness for needling. And this is where things get heavy with a lot of references. And I just went ahead and put the AMA citations on every page so you guys had easy uh, access to them. And if you guys know anything about Edzard Ernst, he is uh, somebody that really hates pseudoscience and writes pretty extensively about pseudoscience and complementary and alternative medicine and that sort of thing. Um, so he put out this study in the Journal of Pain Symptom Management in 2009, looking at multiple Cochrane reviews of acupuncture, and 25 out of the 32 reviews failed to demonstrate any effectiveness for a wide variety of issues for acupuncture. Then we move forward and we look at 
acupuncture and, and dry needling in the management of myofascial trigger point pain, a systematic review and meta-analysis again. Four studies actually used a placebo control, which you guys can probably imagine is somewhat difficult in a needling study to have a patient and a provider blinded. And we know that providers' expectations influence patient outcomes, and patient expectations also influence their outcomes. So it's difficult to have a true good sham for a treatment that's that invasive and something has to physically be done to you, especially penetration of the skin, right? Four studies that actually use placebo control, which is usually poking somebody with a toothpick or a retractable needle that as soon as it goes into the dermis or the epidermis retracts back into the sheath and doesn't actually penetrate through into the dermis or into the, any, any of the underlying connective tissue. Combining these studies, needling was not found to be statistically significant to placebo, right? So you can poke somebody with a toothpick or you can poke them with a retractable needle and you get the same outcome based on Tuff 2009. Well, then we look at Perez 2010, a year later, and it could be concluded that the effectiveness of dry needling is comparable to that of percutaneous electric nerve stimulation, which we know doesn't really do anything to fix any real musculoskeletal condition, right? So that literature is pretty strong that uh, PENS isn't a very viable treatment above placebo. So then when we compare something to it, we know that this is essentially a placebo intervention or an intervention that functions based on contextual effects or patient expectations or at the most short-term modulatory effects of nociception, right? So then we move on, double-blind, randomized control, placebo-controlled study, no differences in visual analog scale or unassisted jaw opening in people with TMJ dysfunction. Then we move on again, effective dry needling of the gluteal muscles on straight leg raise, right? So we're actually looking at does it cause functional changes as well as changes in pain. Again, no difference between sham dry needling then we move on, 2005, comparing needling versus sham. Acupuncture was no more effective than sham in reducing migraine headaches, although both interventions were more effective than waitlist, right? Something almost always tends to be better than nothing, right? So if you have studies that are A versus A plus B, usually A plus B will actually have a better or a greater response because more treatment is perceived to be more beneficial, right? Or A versus nothing, something is better than nothing. We move on, 2005, tension type headache as opposed to migraine headache. The acupuncture intervention investigated in this trial was more effective than no treatment, but not more effective than minimal acupuncture or anything, or, or essentially no better than no treatment or minimal treatment. Something is always better than nothing. We move on again for looking at low back pain. Although acupuncture was found to be effective for chronic low back pain, tailoring needle sites to each patient, so being patient specific, that doesn't matter. Poking the needle through the skin, that doesn't seem to matter. Something seems to be better than nothing. Mannheimer 2018, we're looking for hip osteoarthritis, another musculoskeletal condition. Acupuncture probably has little or no effect in reducing pain or improving function relative to sham in people with hip OA. All right. So we've seen migraine headache, tension type headache, low back pain, hamstring extensibility, 
all, all this sort of stuff, hip osteoarthritis, doesn't seem to be any big difference between the two, uh, between what a placebo intervention would elicit and what a, the real intervention elicits. So then we just go ahead and compare needling to some sort of orthopedic manual physical therapy, right? So trigger point release with somebody's hands versus trigger point release with a needle. And two sessions of needling or manual treatment resulted in basically the same exact outcomes. It's also of note that this study had to be retracted and corrected because it misrepresented the reliability of trigger point palpation. So uh, <laughs> there was a letter to the editor about that when it came out that people weren't really happy about. So then we actually look at another systematic review that took into account multiple body regions, and we see no difference between sham or placebo control. So oh, this one, I'm sorry, I got, I, got one, I got one step ahead of myself. Here we actually have a systematic review that says the majority of high-quality studies show that there is really good benefit of trigger point dry needling. We should definitely use it, right, for multiple muscle groups. Well, then uh, Kenny Veneer and Kyle Ridgeway, uh, Ridgeway wrote a nice uh, rebuttal to this systematic review, pointing out the statistical flaws that only 47% of the studies included actually showed any sort of statistical significance. And it was significantly lower than that. I think like 15% uh, that showed a clinical significance, right? So statistical and clinical significance are not the same thing at all. Only 26 displayed uh, statistical significance in the decrease of disability. 42% didn't include any sort of sham or control. So 10, of the 10 trials that did include sham, only three actually assessed the quality of blinding, right? So out of all of these studies, only three of them actually took into account blinding when they did the meta-analysis and came away with their conclusions. 32% uh, only looked at immediate effects. And like we already talked about, something is better than nothing, and it's really easy to get a short-term change in somebody's subjective reports of pain. But whether that's actually changing long-term outcomes correcting a problem, helping somebody become independent, helping somebody have less disability is an entirely different story. So then we actually have a well-conducted review of dry needling that was pu published in the Journal of Orthopedics and Sports Physical Therapy, which in the physical therapy world, this is one of the premier journals. So it's got a little bit more of a, of a rigorous uh, peer review process. And uh, in the immediate 12-week follow-up, it seemed like dry needling might decrease pain and improve pain pressure threshold compared to sham. But then it goes on to state dry needling when compared to sham or control treatment provides a statistically significant effect on functional outcomes, but not really when compared to any other intervention. So we see that maybe doing something helps people, but doing the dry needling doesn't seem to help any more than anything else, saying that it's not special, and maybe there's something consistent across the domains of all these treatment, all these treatments that has the impact rather than the treatment itself in many cases, right? Maybe that human interaction, maybe the therapeutic ritual, maybe the therapeutic alliance, maybe the patient expectation, maybe the fact that you got to chat with somebody about their kids and their dog and their brother and their sister, and they had a little bit of stress relief is what drove some of the effects. We don't really know. It's, it's kind of equivocal when we compare all, the, all of them. So maybe there's a consistent theme that makes all of these treatments somewhat effective, but none of them seem more effective than other treatments. So I'm going to go ahead and say strike three. You can't define it. You can't, uh, you can't define it. 
You can't find it, and treatments don't appear to be better than sham. So how do we see multiple different uh, clinical examples of success, right? The It Worked For Me Gambit. And if you guys haven't read the article on sciencebasedmedicine.org, the It Worked For Me Gambit, I highly recommend you do it. It's very good, okay? How do we explain when we do a trigger point release or a trigger point injection or an acupuncture treatment and we see some sort of patient reported improvement, but then when we control that, blind ourselves, blind the patient and have a placebo or a, a sham intervention, we see no difference, okay? so. I'm going to go ahead and start by going through multiple different explanations as to why. Uh, I, I left this as diffuse noxious inhibitory control because counter irritation or condition pain modulation hasn't been, it's not quite as, as commonly used in the traditional term. Diffuse noxious inhibitory control is more well understood, but this could be classified, right, as either counter irritation or the idea that pain inhibits pain, right? Um, this could be a really good reason as to why some of these treatments work. I don't know if you guys have ever been needled or needled somebody. or It's not often completely pain-free. Sometimes it's a little bit uncomfortable. Sometimes there's a deep aching. Sometimes there's a sharp sensation. Uh, sometimes you elicit an autonomic response in people because they're scared or they're, they're fearful or they're stressed. They just start sweating, right? So you're getting these systemic effects that might be more due to pain and fear or discomfort rather than the effects of the needle itself. And that could drive a lot of diffuse noxious inhibitory control in which we have modification of the body's inherent um, pain modulatory pathways, right? So I like to call this the make it hurt so damn bad that it feels better when you stop fallacy, right? Then we could look at possibly regression to the mean. Maybe when we started treating that person, they were in a flare-up. And then over the course of treating them, they kind of just regressed back to their mean level of discomfort. Uh, we treated them at their worst. Their pain was a 7 out of 10. It normally hangs out at a 4 out of 10. Over the course of a couple of weeks and a couple of sessions, it kind of cycles back down to that 4 out of 10. It regresses to the mean, and we see statistical and clinical significance for our treatment intervention, even though it was just the fact that the condition regressed back to its normal resting uh, level of issue. So the best way to think about that that I like is, the sprinter that breaks the world record will probably run closer to his or her average time on the next race, right? Usain Bolt has never run as fast as he did again when he set the world record. And in fact, the next race, he got beat by Justin Gatlin. No, was it Justin Gatlin? Yeah, he got beat by Justin Gatlin, even though neither of them set the world record. So he ran slower and got beat, came in second place in his next big race, even though... All, all cylinders were firing. That one leg that was longer than the other was a little bit longer that day. He probably had a PT that did a reverse innominant rotation correction or something, got his leg longer, so he could actually produce more force, 16% instead of uh, everybody stand up and say, triggered, I only have 10 minutes left. <laughs> so this could lead us to wrongly concluding that an effect is due to a treatment when it's actually due to chance or just statistical changes, right? Just normal statistical variance. So then we move on to natural history of the condition. 
maybe somebody just has a, some tension headaches or maybe somebody has an acute exacerbation of low back pain and we know that the common course of low back pain usually runs four to six weeks for acute exacerbations. So we get somebody a week after their low back pain flares up and then we get to treat them for five or six weeks after that and the natural history of the condition is that it resolves. The worst case of this I've ever had that makes me so mad is my mother-in-law hurt her back playing tennis. She came to see me the next day, and I was like, man, I'm sorry, we just need to keep you moving. You know, we can do some modality stuff to make you feel better, but really I want you to do these gentle movements and stretches and don't freak out, don't worry about it, don't run out and get an MRI, don't get any crazy treatment. And uh, she didn't like it very much because I didn't do very much for her other than reassure her. And then she went and got acupuncture about five weeks later and her back pain got better. even though it was continuing to get better over the course of that. But then, you know, about five or six weeks, and all of a sudden it was better. And uh, so now she thinks that I'm worthless. <laughs> right? So a nice little graphic for that is you have an injury, a back strain. You have a patient that freaks out. You have an inflammatory cascade that causes some nociception that leads to seeking of care. Well, now you've got some healing occurring. Patient gets a diagnosis of degenerative disc disease or a bulging disc or facet hypertrophy or whatever we're going to label them with because of all those normal changes that occur and exist with uh, you know just being older than the age of 20 or so. And uh, then the condition is naturally resolving. The patient begins treatment. They're probably beginning treatment with me, a physical therapist or something like that. And uh, they get better in a couple of weeks. And I pat myself on the back and say, I'm damn good at my job. And I must have did. It must have been that fancy manual technique I did or that dry needling that got them better. You know, I, I cracked their back and they were awesome. Condition actually fully resolves. Treatment appears to have worked. This is what's called the post hoc fallacy, right? So then... Let's actually look at the placebo effect or meaning response. We know know that every interaction that we have with people has the potential for either a placebo or nocebo effect. Every single person in this room as a medical provider is a walking placebo effect. The way that you dress, the way that you smile, the way that you laugh, the way that you interact, how personable you are, how much you show you care, how much uh, you really claim your treatment to work, the fact that you're intelligent, the fact that you're well-spoken, all of these things are things that factor in to whether a patient will have a positive or a negative meaning response or outcome to your treatment, right? So we can really take a lot of responsibility in the way that we interact with people to uh, do them no harm, which I think is like somewhere at the beginning of the Hippocratic Oath or something like that, um, to make sure that we are positive in the way that we interact with people and not negative in the way that we interact with people. And I believe my colleague, Kate Schottmeyer, had a really good talk about this earlier, about the words that we use with our patients. So if you guys didn't get to listen to that, please go back and look at her slides. Um, If you're not familiar much with placebo research, underline, highlight, underscore this name. Benedetti is probably the world's leading researcher in uh, the placebo effect. And uh, one of the favorite things that I've read about from him is the open-hidden paradigm. Have you guys, who's familiar with the open-hidden paradigm? Got one person, awesome. So, (laughs) excuse me. So when you... The way that they study this is to give somebody that's in an acute care hospital setting a morphine or some sort of uh, uh, opioid-based pain medication, something like that, and they either do it in a 
uh, a way in which a machine just injects it into their IV without the patient knowing. They never get any awareness that they're getting the drug. They just know that at some point during the day they're going to get the drug. Or a physician actually comes in and injects it directly into their IV and they interact with them and they say, hey, this is going to make you feel better. Guess what? Physician interaction and application of the medicine leads to a 50% greater response in pain modulation. So the medicine itself is amplified by 50% from the human interaction, right? This stuff is freaking amazing. So expectation and patient beliefs and the way that we interact with them dramatically changes the outcomes of what we see with our treatments. Then, like I've already been talking about, contextual effects, uh, Sazerniak, I don't know if that's how you say it or not, um, actually looked at modulating or manipulating the theatrics of a clinician when they applied a treatment or in, in, engaged in a treatment plan with a patient and saw a dramatic increase in the outcomes and a dramatic increase in measured pain reduction and disability levels reported by the patient when the theatrics were a little bit more played up, right? When the, the, the theatrics created a greater therapeutic alliance, when the theatrics sold the treatment a little bit more, you had a way stronger outcome. And then, of course, as I've already mentioned, patient expectation. And I'm a psychology nerd, so I love logical fallacies. The genetic fallacy, if we're talking about acupuncture and that sort of thing, the genetic fallacy is when somebody ascribes a lot of value or meaning to something because it's been around for a long time, right? Well, acupuncture has been around since the BC, right? It's been around forever, and if it's lasted that long, it must have phenomenal effects. So because of that, because it's been there, I'm going to ascribe a lot of perceived value to it. Appeal to the people. A lot of people believe that this works, so if so many people believe that it works, it must work. So I'm going to ascribe a lot of value to that. Appeal to the experts. A lot of really smart people talk about how great this is, and they're smarter than me, and they're more well-read than me, so I'm going to automatically ascribe more value to that, right? So we have all of these different things that either can influence us or influence our patients that dramatically change the way that our treatments work. But I always want to end off with something a little bit nice. If there's people in here that do do dry needling, that do do acupuncture, it's important that we do recognize that we can get some positive outcomes whether they might be from placebo or meaning response or context or expectations, the risk is still lower than that of NSAIDs, it's still lower than that of opioids, it's still lower than that of surgery, and it's a hell of a lot cheaper than all of these alternatives as well. And I want to throw it out that needling is probably no different than massage or high-velocity, low-amplitude thrusts or, you know, spinal manipulation. But uh, we don't seem to attack these just quite as much as maybe needling and, and acupuncture get attacked sometimes by the... Uh, the people that are trying to bring down pseudoscience. So I don't want us to uh, miss the forest for the trees because there are bigger fish to fry, and that's kind of been the theme of this entire conference. Um, the opioid crisis and, and the way that we need to go about changing how we manage pain because it's a really complex socio-biological, psychological construct or, or experience that has a lot to do with perceptions and expectations so I just don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. And here's reference lists.
Yes. Uh, that's a really good question. It depends on what their expectations of dry needling are. If they have never had it, I will not use that as a treatment. If they are coming back into me and say, I've had dry needling in the past for this issue, and it was phenomenal, I'm going to say, well, we can definitely try that, but you know, all the new science is saying that we need to mix this dry needling intervention with these other interventions that are going to have long-term effect because this is just a short-term nervous system modulatory type of deal. And uh, I'm, in the, I'm in an awkward scenario where my clinic that I took over that I run was built upon somebody that only dry needle all day long, every single patient. So there's a lot of referral sources and relationships that very much request dry needling. So it's a, it's a difficult situation. You might have to walk sometimes with patient expectations, um, having a job to actually go to, and uh, ref, you know relationships within the community as well. Yes, sir. I think one of the hidden benefits of dry needling is to make the attempt because we're all under the in the crosshairs of the regulatory boards who want to have us show that we have looked at other non-opioid uh, options for treating pain. And if we've tried it and it failed, well, at least that's another box we've checked off. Right, and that, that's a problem with the system, right? That's a problem with the way that our system is constructed. Right, right. We have to we have to check their boxes to help somebody out or, or to continue to stay in business, and that's not really the most effective way, of course, to help patients. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, I can't hear you very well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Our our ability to palpate things with our hands has been dramatically oversold in in kind of traditional thought processes. And 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 you're right. You know, we we have. I think it's uh, like 50 or 60 percent of the time, the study that you're referencing, the well-trained uh, clinician cannot accurately locate the L4 spinous process through manual palpation. Right, and, and if you're familiar with the idea of palpation periodolia, it's the idea, or the idea of periodolia itself, that you can find something that's not there in a structure. You can will yourself into seeing it or feeling it. And uh, there's a really good article on painscience.com written by Paul Ingraham on palpation periodolia that you can read that goes through all the research on how we can trick ourselves into believing that we feel or see something that we may not actually feel or see. Um, it's my personal bias, and I don't want to say it as fact, of course, 
that its uh, trigger points or soft tissue sore spots are 100% a manifestation of some other sort of uh, neuroendocrine immune um, dysregulation that's probably manifesting itself as um, sensitivity due to the perception that the body needs to be protected in some way. And of course, we know that our perceptions influence our physiology and our immune system function, so that probably could further drive the likelihood of some certain spots having alterations in their pain pressure threshold. Not that I've seen. That doesn't mean that they're not there. I would love to read more on that, and uh, I would love to see that data correlated with the actual experience of symptoms and see if there's just changes that occur and, you know, what changes are painful and what changes are not painful. Um, but the fact that we can see all of this literature cropping up across multiple body regions of changes in tissue quality, regardless of the fact that there's no pain there, we could... I don't know why we would want to look at the existence of trigger points or some sort of hypoechoic area in the body as any different, right? These are probably things that may just happen, and there's, there's probably a lot more going on within the actual human, in, in, in the multi-system expression of the human's experience of life that dictate whether or not they'll experience pain in that area. Um, because we know that there are certain people that have high, high changes in their joints but very low pain and certain people that have no changes in their joints or soft tissues and have very high levels of pain. So the more that we figure out about those differences and what makes some people very resilient and some people not very resilient, I think is where we'll start to see our answers there. Yes, sir. So if a, if a patient is never referred to me for dry needling, I will never do it. If they're referred specifically, um, I set the expectation immediately that we're going to do this one or two times, and then we're going to move on to other things. And if it hasn't caused uh, a, an improvement and it hasn't allowed us to modulate their nervous system in the short term to allow for more active approaches to recovery, then you know we're immediately moving away from it. But I let them know. I never talk about trigger points. I never talk about um, things like that. I talk about, hey, this is a way that we can activate certain areas of your nervous system to decrease the amount of pain that you feel in the short term while we actually work towards fixing the issue, which is maybe your decreased load capacity or maybe addressing stressors in their life or, or maybe looking at other factors that could be sensitizing their system. So for me, it's, it's speaking using neurological language to reframe the way that a patient uh, looks at themselves or believes uh, what their pain actually is. Okay, so you don't use it strictly just for pain management? Uh, no, not at all. Like I said, I try to use it as little as possible. I have been in the clinic that I've been in for about three and a half years now, and like I mentioned earlier, it was built upon uh, dry needling. And now it probably happens maybe once a week out of, you know, 60 patients or something like that. And I'm trying to make that zero times a week for the most part because I feel very unethical providing a treatment that I don't think that the research supports. But I also know that if it's between that and going under the knife for somebody, I'm going to hopefully, my, my morals would say, 
help them to reframe the way that they think about pain and cognitively reassess what what their pain means to them and provide them with other coping strategies and other interventions that might be a little bit more evidence-based before they go on to a more invasive procedure that might not be uh, a good choice for them. Yes, sir. So, and I'm, certainly spasms we know exist. You know, the Charlie horse, you know, it's severely painful, right? In a huge muscle, for whatever reason, whether it's dehydration, overuse, being tired, you know, magnesium, calcium, psychology, my fear, cold, you know, surfing, I get them, whatever. It, mm-hmm. it, that's the most extreme example of that kind of phenomenon to me. But then what we do is we try to stretch it, right? Massage it, whatever. I've never tried drug either. Smaller ones, I guess some people believe that you can do it like massage or stretching to stimulate that unit. No, I, I mean, I definitely agree, and that, yeah. that's certainly the traditional thought process on it. I mean, but I can't ignore the research that actually uses the, the treatment of it. The methodology as when you try to do a sham, you may change the situation then in this dynamic person. That when you press on that area, Right, so then then we could talk about, well, are you providing some sort of dermal stimulation that actually allows the somatosensory cortex to start to reorganize itself because it gains greater awareness over that body and doesn't... It's like ointments that we put on the skin, right, or whatever for a muscle spasm. Right, so what... What I would do is highly recommend you go to the next talk by Marcos Lopez, which is about sensory discriminatory changes in the body and cortical reorganization. So I think that there's some merit there that physical contact with a human could provide proprioceptive input that actually uh, reorganizes the cortex in a more beneficial way because we know that pain disorganizes the cortex and changes the gray matter structure. So we could be, in essence, uh, desmudging their cortex with certain manual therapy interventions, um, but we don't know enough to say that for sure, but I think it's certainly plausible. Yes, sir. So there are a couple of studies that look at like lidocaine injections that show some at least short-term benefit because obviously we know that lidocaine prevents the transmission of nociceptive input. So if one of the theories of um, nervi nervorum peripheral nerve innervation is uh, valid, then we're going to at least get some short-term relief there. But as soon as the lidocaine wears away, you're still going to be in the same position of uh, nervi nervorum inflammation. And I think that that's... If I'm not mistaken, that's what the literature has shown, is that there are some short-term benefits, but no long-term 
long-lasting benefits. And of course, then the question comes up of where do we actually place that injection because we can't reliably know where to place it. And if somebody is tender to palpate in a certain area, we can't automatically say that that is a trigger point because we know there's referred hyperalgesia and, and all this sort of stuff. So it becomes obviously really complex. Uh, and, and I don't think that I have an answer for that, and I don't think that anybody does. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, toward all being a systemic medication, you can put it in the buttery. Sure, you sure. You don't have to put it in the back. I mean, you're still going to probably get the same. Right. I mean, with Toradol, no matter what, we're going to decrease in those susceptible firing, right? What, what would be the alternative evidence? You know, that's a good question, and I don't think it can be summed up. Right. I mean, there's there's limited evidence. What we do know is that, in general, getting people moving and exercising seems to work really well. well. Pairing that with altering uh, stressors in their life seems to work really well. Pairing that with cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that work really well. So this multimodal approach to management of pain rather than um, a single-factor approach, because single-factor approaches follow biomedical thinking that ascribe all pain to some sort of you know, biomedical or tissue-based cause, and we know that that's not necessarily the case. So I think that individualized care that really matches what that particular patient in front of us seems to benefit from the most or they have the greatest expectations for. Or if you look at the um, allostatic loading model, for instance, of pain, there's, there's so much allostatic load coming into a person's experience of life that could drive the homeostatic balance out of you know, the normal zone, which leads to immune system issues and inflammatory issues and pain and injuries and sleep disturbance and uh, depression, so on and so forth. So maybe it's sometimes it's just decreasing allostatic load enough to where their system can tolerate the amount of stress that they're under and they don't manifest certain different painful conditions. Well, there was a study that just came out, I think, last month for um, acupuncture for infertility, and uh, it didn't have good uh, results. But um, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> How is the reimbursement for trying this? Well, that depends on the insurance. Uh, any government-based insurance absolutely will not pay for dry needling. However, private insurances have a gray area in which they neither say that they do or they don't, and most people bill it under a manual therapy CPT code. Um, however, the APTA stance is that you should not bill dry needling under manual therapy. You should bill it as um, whatever the extra treatment code is. Um, most of the time, if I, if I do do it on anybody with Medicare, I just don't charge them. I just don't worry about it on a private insurer because to me, there's no difference between it and any sort of orthopedic manual, physical therapy, whatever it is, soft tissue work, scraping, all that sort of stuff. They all work via the same thing, placebos and patient expectations and short-term dermal modulation. I don't see it as any different than manual therapy. It's just a intramuscular or uh, you know, more invasive form of manual therapy, but probably works via a multitude of contextual effects and, and uh, meaning response and that sort of thing. So... There's a lot of gray area in this stuff, and that might even differ state to state. I just know what the laws are and what the insurances that I deal with are.
Yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate the